0: Thank you. You can have a seat. If you would, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 16. Mark chapter 16. Uh, I want to start in just a moment by reading a passage of Scripture there, and then we're going to look at the next Message uh, in the series, Jesus, come and see. We've been in this now for a couple of months or so. This is uh, the ninth message in that series. Just looking at kind of a biography of uh, who Jesus is, based on Scripture. Yeah, you know, we're letting that be our guide. Let that be our, you know, our, our primary source. It's really the only one that we can trust in. And uh, and so we've been looking at Old Testament and New Testament alike. Uh, looking at the different aspects of Jesus's biography. And uh, it's, been, it's been a good series to me. It's been uh, one that's really encouraged me. It stretched me as well, just my time of prep for it. So hopefully the case for you as well. So Mark chapter 16, this morning we're going to begin um, a message looking at Jesus's resurrection. Mark 16, this is Mark's version, all four gospels speak of the resurrection of Jesus. I just want to read a portion of Mark's perspective, beginning in verse 1. It says, when the Sabbath was over... Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might come and anoint him. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen, and they were saying to one another, "'Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb?' Looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, although it was extremely large, and entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting at the right, wearing a white robe, and they were amazed." And he said to them, do not be amazed, you're looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who has been uh, crucified. He is risen, he is not here, behold, here is the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee, there you'll see him, just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had gripped them, and and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. You're familiar with the phrase defining moments, you know, they're... Or defining moments that come in life. Sometimes it happens in the sports world where a team will get a big win or maybe they'll get a crushing defeat and uh, you know, the coach gives this rousing speech and everyone rallies around that and it's kind of that defining moment for the rest of their season. You see defining moments in different ways in history. Certainly in our, in our nation's history, we've had many of those defining moments. Um, obviously, the one that probably most would think of would be the signing of the Declaration of Independence is what made our country what it is. It was a defining moment. It was a break from what had been the norm to that point, and it was what established us as a nation. And since that time in 1776, there have been many other defining moments that have come. But defining moments are they're sort of like catalysts. They're those events that take place that when they occur, they, they shape and they influence all the other events that come afterwards. The way our country operates today has been shaped by the signing of that Declaration of Independence, a team that rallies you know, around that defining moment. Their season takes a different direction from the point of that defining moment. It's that moment that influences and, and that shapes all other moments that come. Well, for us, what I want us to see this morning as we add to the series called Jesus Come and See is the simple principle that the defining moment of Christianity is the resurrection of Jesus. So if you're brand new to the faith, right, or if you're brand new to really looking at what Christianity is all about, then you've probably you know, sort of thought through what, what, what is the resurrection all about, and maybe you haven't really grasped the importance of it. And I know in Christianity it's hard to say this is the defining moment because without the coming of Jesus, right, that first Christmas, then you don't have a cross and you don't have an empty tomb. Uh, without the, the cross and the resurrection, doesn't matter. I know one kind of feeds off of the other, but we could rightly say that that it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that is that defining moment that makes Christianity really what it is. Without and we're going to see this in the scriptures here just a bit without the resurrection as that defining moment, all of Christianity essentially falls apart. And yet what we see when we read in the Old Testament is uh, the message of a Messiah who's going to come. What we see in the New Testament uh, is, the, the yes, the cross, but also the resurrection is that pinnacle moment specifically. It's what separates Christianity from all the other world religions. I remember when I was in college, I referenced this a few weeks ago. When I was in college, I took a class on religion, thinking it was just going to be kind of a glorified Sunday school class, right? It's going to be this nice big Bible study. And it wasn't that. It was not even close to that. And it was exactly what it said it was going to be. It was an an examination of all the different, or many of the major world religions that are in existence. And when you look at world religion, when you look at Islam, when you look at Hinduism, when you look at Buddhism and all the other isms that are out there, Christianity stands alone, having evidenced itself, having proven itself as the only true religion, if you want to use that term. When you look at Buddhism, for example, the central figure of Buddhism, obviously, is is, is Buddha. And when you look at, at, at Buddha specifically, he died in 485 B.C., and he's still in the grave. There's been no evidence ever produced that ever shows that he's anything but still in the grave, and yet this whole religion exists that has been built around him. Specifically, you look at Islam, uh, Muhammad, who died in 632 AD, right? He, He died centuries ago, and you've got a whole world religion that has been built around it that still continues to propagate and to grow still today. However... There has never been evidence proven, and there's never even been a claim necessarily that Muhammad rose from the dead. He's still dead in the grave still today. But when you look at Christianity, the resurrection of this person, Jesus Christ, is what holds everything together. It's what holds the whole entire belief system together. It's what validates the, the Old Testament. It's what validates the New Testament. It's what validates who Jesus was. And it truly is, specifically, that defining moment in christianity so last week we looked at the death of jesus and uh We looked at how when he gave his life on the cross there was so much that was accomplished as a result of that. It had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Isaiah the prophet prophesied 750 years before Jesus that the Messiah would come and would die in that manner. You look all the way back to Psalm chapter 22, a thousand years before Jesus and other Messianic Psalms that prophesied Jesus' death specifically. When you go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the third chapter in the Bible, there's even there this reference to one who's going to come that's going to crush the enemy. And so Jesus' death was prophesied. It was for shadowed right through Abraham and what he offered Isaac. Or was willing to offer Isaac as a sacrifice. You remember, we looked at this last Sunday. God intervened and He provided a ram as a substitute. He provided a ram as a sacrifice. And that foreshadowed the fact that there's going to be a Messiah who's going to come. Jesus accomplished that specifically. He accomplished it in in a way that overlays beautifully over Genesis 22 and Isaiah offering his son, or or, uh, Abraham offering his son. So you see the death of Jesus prophesied, you see it foreshadowed. And, And we talked last Sunday about what His death accomplished. Right? It satisfied the wrath of God, that God had to pour out wrath on sin. And it doesn't mean that God is anything less than loving or merciful. The cross intensifies God's love and his mercy, right? Because he had to show wrath to sin. I mean, he had to deal with it. He couldn't turn a blind eye to sin. He's holy. He's perfect. He couldn't turn a blind eye. He had to... to um, he had to apply justice to our sin, and the way he did it was on Jesus. That's called propitiation. It's where he, just, uh, he satisfied the, the just wrath of God towards sin. We talked about that last Sunday. We talked about how through the cross God demonstrated his great love for us. He demonstrated his mercy. He offers redemption because Jesus died in our place. He, he, he offers to, to, to buy us back off the slave market to sin, so to speak. We talked about uh, reconciliation, how we're made right with the God who created us if we place our faith in Jesus because, again, he paid for our sins. We talked about justification, how he declares us not guilty if we have a relationship with Jesus. All that happens from the cross. And so today what we're going to do is we're adding that other layer on top of the cross and we're looking at what happened three days later, specifically as it relates to the resurrection of Jesus. So when you look at Jesus' resurrection and you hold it up against the rest of the Gospels, I think the question can be asked maybe by some who've never really studied the Bible. So was this part of Jesus' plan from the beginning? Was this part of God's plan? And the answer is yes. In fact, Jesus spoke about his resurrection uh, before the event even took place. And when he spoke of it, he spoke of it in clarity, he spoke of it in detail, and it all played out exactly like he said it would. Take a look at some of these passages, Matthew chapter 16. I just want to look at a few of these examples where Jesus, before his crucifixion ever took place would speak about his resurrection Matthew chapter 16 look down in verse 21 This is what Matthew tells us. It says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. So Jesus said very clearly to those who knew him, to those who followed him, that there's going to be a moment that's going to come where he's going to be crucified. He's going to be ultimately resurrected from the dead. You look over in Mark chapter 8, verse 27. You see another example of this, it says Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, who do people say that I am? And it's just a conversation on the way. Hey, who who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, well, John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others one of the prophets. And then this would be a defining moment, I believe. For these disciples this next question verse 29 and he continued by questioning them but who do you say that i am listen i'm just going to pause there because i want to finish that passage in a second but let me just say that is a cut to the chase question that every single one of us in this room have to do business with who do we believe that jesus is who do we say that he is if you say he was just a good man, if you say he was just a moral teacher, if you say he was just the, 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 this, this figurehead of a religion that would somehow sprout and grow and then end up becoming a kind of a different entity unto itself, if that's who you think he is, then you're missing it. Because he was a moral teacher, he was a good man, he did walk this earth, and he did walk this earth without sin. But here's what Peter's response is to this question. When he says, who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. In other words, you are Lord. You are no less than God himself. And Jesus warned them to tell no one about him. Right? The world would know soon enough exactly who he was. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. So here, Caesarea Philippi, he's telling his disciples, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be handed over, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to rise again. And he tells them when, three days later. You go two chapters further, Mark chapter 10, a different location. Mark chapter 10, verse 32, they were on the road, not to Caesarea Philippi this time, going up to Jerusalem. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again he took the twelve aside, and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man, that's a reference to himself, will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, he will hand, and they will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, they will spit on him, they will scourge him, and they will kill him. And three days later he will rise again. This had been part of the plan all along. Remember his mission. His mission, Luke 19, 10, to seek and to save that which is lost. So I came. It wasn't just to do miracles. It wasn't just to heal people. It wasn't just to preach good messages. It was to seek and to save that which was lost, meaning those who were separated from God, far from God because of their sin. Remember what his message was. It was a message of a new kingdom, right? The kingdom of God. He talked about the kingdom of God more than most everything else that he talked about. It was a message of a new kingdom with a new king, he being the king. And it was a message of an open invitation for everybody to come and to follow him and to be a part of the kingdom of God in relationship with him as king. Remember what his ministry was. Everything he did supported the mission, supported the message. And all along the way, he's saying, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to be be handed over. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be spit upon. I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be crucified. And three days later, I'm going to rise again. This was so much a part of his message that after he was crucified, the religious leaders would make plans to try to Keep the message of his resurrection under wraps. Look at what it says, Matthew chapter 27. This is an interesting passage of Scripture that just helps us to see how often Jesus spoke about his resurrection. Matthew 27, beginning in verse 57. This is after the crucifixion. It says, "...when it was evening," verse 57, "...there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus." This man went to Pilate and he asked for the body of Jesus and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and he laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and he went away. Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees, remember they were responsible for his crucifixion, they gathered together with Pilate. And they said, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days, I am to rise again. Remember, he, he mentioned, he, I mean, he prophesied his own resurrection with such clarity and, and such regularity that those who hated him the most would take steps to try to push down any talk of a possible resurrection. Verse 64, therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come, steal him away, say to the people, he's risen from the dead, the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to him, you have a guard, go, make it as secure as you know how. And they went and they made the grave secure and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. So there would be the story that would be propagated and you can see it already beginning to take shape. There would be story a story that would propagate and that would, would extend to the point to where we come today, 2,000 years later, and there are still those who oppose the message of the resurrection of Jesus. And they have a variety of different reasons why the resurrection could not have taken place. No evidence, right, to support it, but a variety of reasons. Some would say, oh, Jesus didn't really die on the cross, he just lost consciousness. And then in the grave, he just revived and somehow was revived enough to, after having been beaten beyond recognition and nails driven through both hands and both feet and a spear thrust into his side, somehow revived enough to be able to, you know, move the stone and just sort of walk right out like nothing had happened. That's a kind of a stretch, I would say. You ever had the flu? You think you could move a stone that big, right, after having three days of the flu? Imagine, imagine what he went through, all right? It's just It's not happening. Some would say, oh, it's just a big hallucination, you know. This hallucination that people thought they saw the risen Jesus. We're going to see in a minute, First Corinthians 15, Paul says that he appeared to over 500 people. You don't have mass hallucinations. They don't happen. A hallucination happens on an independent individual level. You don't have 500 people have a hallucination where they, like, saw something that didn't really exist, right? All the, the, the arguments against the resurrection just, they lose, they lose their, their, their bite, right because there's no evidence but when you think about it there's ample evidence to prove to prove the resurrection of Jesus beyond just what Matthew Mark Luke and John wrote which is enough in itself but when you think about the claims against the resurrection, maybe even for some of you here today, I'm not going to discount this, that maybe some of you here today you're kind of checking out this whole Christian thing and you're checking out what it means to have a relationship with God. Maybe for some of you the, the resurrection has been a real sticking point because you've never witnessed this before. You've, you've been to dozens and dozens of funerals but you've never seen a resurrection take place. And so for you it just seems like a little bit of a stretch. How could the resurrection take place? Or well, Remember who we're dealing with here. Remember that we're dealing with no less than God himself. Jesus, without beginning, without end, he's eternal. We establish that early on. And when he walked this earth, he walked this earth not just 100% God, but also 100% man. And so it's not a stretch at all for him to ultimately be raised from the dead. But here's one of my things, that when I look at the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are also legitimate biographers, right? They have written these works of antiquity that we have captured in what we call the Bible. And we can trust what they say. It's not ever been proven to be without error. But even beyond that, Right? That's a discussion in and of itself. Beyond that, just the fact that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all have corroborating, independent, reliable uh, uh, perspectives on the resurrection of Jesus. Beyond that, what would have put this thing to rest quickly, within a matter of days, would have been just produce a body, Right? If Jesus truly did not resurrect from the dead, all it would have taken, and I can guarantee you that if the religious leaders would go so far as to go to Pilate and to say, we want to make sure that some word of a resurrection doesn't get out, can you go to these extreme measures to seal the tomb? You can imagine that if there was any possibility to produce a body in a matter of just a few days after the claims of the resurrection were taking place, they would have easily done it. They would have made sure that happened, and yet there's never been any evidence that the body of Jesus has ever been found or produced, right? They could have put the whole thing to rest right there in just a matter of moments. And it could have been, grab the megaphone, say, everyone disperse, go back to your homes, here's the body, it's all over, right? And yet we don't have any evidence in history that this ever happened. Secondly, if it was untrue, think about his followers. If the resurrection never happened, then his followers, starting with 11 of the disciples, Judas Iscariot took himself out early on, right before the crucifixion, that if the resurrection was just a farce, just a made-up lie, if it didn't exist, and if it didn't really happen, then all 11 of his disciples and many in the early church died for what they would have known was a lie they had everything to lose by pushing forth this narrative that Jesus had risen from the dead they had everything to lose absolutely nothing to gain if it was a lie because they would have been ostracized from the temple they would have been kicked out they would have been put out they would have been more than they would have been persecuted their families would more than likely have been persecuted in fact when you go to the towards the end of the new testament and you get to hebrews chapter 11 this long litany of names and people who were he- heroes of the faith. Listen what it says in Hebrews 11 beginning in verse 36. Speaking of those early followers of Jesus. It says others experienced mockings and scourgings, yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were so they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were tempted, they were put to death with a sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy, wandering in deserts and mountains and caves and holes in the ground. This is what the followers of Jesus, who who pushed the narrative that he had risen from the dead, got as a result. And of all people, they would have known whether he really rose from the dead or not. And yet they planted their feet, and they took their stand, and they died horrific deaths because they knew that Jesus had risen from the dead. Yet another layer of evidence That proves that everything Jesus said was going to happen actually took place. There there are recorded witnesses in the Bible. Acts chapter 1, for example. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. Luke would also write the book of Acts. Chapter 1, first three verses, he says, The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. He's speaking about the Gospel of Luke that he wrote. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days, and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. There are recorded witnesses all throughout Scripture. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, we're going to see in a moment, says there are over 500 Many of whom were alive when these books were written. 1 Corinthians was written around the year 55, 20, 25 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. If it didn't happen, easily people could have refuted it. Another proof Jesus' resurrection changed lives. I mean, it changed the life of his brother James. If you look at Acts chapter 1, same chapter there, this is, uh, this is after Jesus ascended back to the Father. His followers begin to gather. Look at what it says, verse 12. They returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. When they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Look at the disciples who were there. Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas, the son of James. The disciples are there, right? Jesus has died, he's resurrected, he's ascended to the Father. They're in this upper room, verse 14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Now, here's what's interesting, that when you think about the lives that were changed as a result of the resurrection of Jesus, remember his brothers. We talked a few weeks ago about Jesus's early days uh, uh, on earth, that, that as a child, when he grew up. And, and we got to the Gospels, and we saw how his own family dynamic, his own brothers Right? They, they were kind of saying to him, Jesus, let's just reel this thing back, right? Just you know, reel it in a little bit. Why don't you come on home with us? They didn't believe that he was the Messiah the way he was claiming to be. And yet here we have testimony from Luke, right? In the book of Acts chapter one, we have testimony of, of, of his brothers being there in the upper room after the crucifixion, right? When the same people who crucified Jesus would have gladly come after his followers and there are his brothers in that upper room already absorbing the risk of what it meant to follow Jesus. What was the defining moment? It was that they knew he had resurrected from the dead. He wasn't a dead savior in a tomb still. That He had literally risen from the dead. You've got Peter who goes from being a denier of Jesus just a matter of hours before the crucifixion to then just a matter of weeks later He is then proclaiming the gospel uh, there in the city of Jerusalem. 3,000 people place their faith in Jesus. He goes from denier of Jesus to, uh, uh, to the greatest proponent of the message of the gospel, pretty much that we read in Acts, maybe other than the Apostle Paul. And speaking of Paul, by the way, Paul was a persecutor of the early church. He, uh, he was able to see the risen Jesus who appeared to him, and he went from persecutor to the greatest missionary the world's ever seen. I mean, all of those lives changed, and countless others as a result as well. What was the, move, what was the pinnacle moment? It was the resurrection of Jesus. It is the hinge on which your faith as a Christian swings. 1 Corinthians 15, I want you to turn there, and let's just camp there for just a bit. 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians written about 25 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus. One of the early books in the New Testament. Paul writes it to a church in the city of Corinth. Chapter 15 is a lengthy chapter. We're not going to read the whole chapter, but it is a long chapter that deals largely with the resurrection of Jesus and the implications of that. But there in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 3, going down through verse 8, is what many believe is the earliest creed of Christianity. Right? One theologian uh, slash apologist, Gary Habermas, has said that he believes that this section, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8, was a creed that would have been put together within months of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul writes it here, he includes it in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's go ahead and read it beginning in verse 3. He says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep or have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is perhaps the earliest creed of Christianity, and what it focuses on is the simple message of the gospel. It's the death of Jesus according to the scriptures. It is the burial of Jesus, and it was the resurrection of Jesus, and then the appearances of Jesus to other people, upwards of over 500 people all total. So what is the difference that it makes then for us? I mean, if all this is true, we have no reason to believe it's not. Then what is the difference? Well, let's go a little further in 1 Corinthians 15. Let's pick up in verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached... That he, has been raised from, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we're even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised for if the dead are not raised not even christ has been raised and if christ hasn't been raised your faith is worthless you are still in your sins then those also who have fallen asleep in christ those who have died have perished and if we hoped in christ in this life only we are of all men most to be pitied so why does jesus's resurrection matter here here's what i hope for for you and here's what I hope for me. I hope that we don't have a faith that just hangs out on the surface and never goes deeper than the things we learned in Sunday school when we were kids, if we were, play, if we were saved when we were young. I hope that for you, the whole topic of the, the crucifixion, the resurrection, the implications of all that, I hope it's something that goes deeper and deeper and deeper for you because the implications run far and the implications run deep. Right. So what does it truly matter that Jesus did did rise from the dead, what does it matter to us? Well, number one, it provides the heart to your faith. That's what it accomplishes. Your faith, when you think about uh, your faith as a follower of Jesus, and when people ask you about your faith, oh, my faith is precious to me. Oh, my, I don't know where I'd be without my faith in Jesus, right? We speak highly of our faith, and rightly so. It's the, the, the most precious thing that we possess. When you think about your faith, the resurrection is what provides the heart to that faith to the point to where look at what paul would say again in verse 14 he says if christ has not been raised right if the resurrection never took place he says then our preaching is in vain and he says your faith also is in vain in other words your faith loses its value if jesus isn't risen from the dead it is a must that he rises from the dead. If, if everything we talked about last Sunday, that when he died on the cross, it was prophesied, it was foreshadowed, he dies on the cross, let's say it appeases the wrath of God, he, he, uh, he, he does everything that was accomplished on the cross, but he doesn't rise from the dead, Paul would say That's, that means nothing. It accomplished absolutely Nothing. He says your faith would be dead without the resurrection of Jesus. Second, and what we see there in that passage is that Jesus' resurrection completed God's salvation plan, ultimately for your forgiveness. I mean, it was, it was all tied together. Look at what he says in verse 17 and verse 18. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. And those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If Jesus only died on the cross and did not rise again, not only is Christianity non-existent and and, and without any value whatsoever, but you have no hope of salvation. He had to rise from the dead. He had to conquer the grave. I mean, Paul makes it very clear. If he did not rise from the dead, then he says, you're still in your sins, verse 17. The resurrection of Jesus is the backbone of your hope. Verse 19, if we hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. The reason that we can hope in this life and the reason we have assurance for the eternal life that he has offered to us is because of his resurrection, right? If he doesn't rise from the dead, we don't have any hope in this world. Going a little bit further, you go further in 1 Corinthians 15, look down in verse 50 towards the end of that chapter what paul says here beginning in verse 50 is that the resurrection sets the stage for our own resurrection as followers of jesus right when you die you're not just as a christian you're just going to be buried or cremated and then be you know in the grave you're not you're not going to be annihilated as some would say and just no longer exist that's not the way this works the only reason that we have the hope of, of one day a resurrection right, to where we can, can spend eternity with God in heaven is because of the resurrection of Jesus. Paul says in verse 50, he says, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. He's talking about the Christian in a day yet to come. He says, for this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. But when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that's written, death is swallowed up in victory. How is death swallowed up in victory? Because of the resurrection of Jesus. Because you're going to be resurrected as a Christian one day. Verse 55, he says, O death, where is your victory? Oh death, where is your sting? Yes, Paul is talking trash to death itself. That's exactly what he's doing right there. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And the only reason that that happens is because not only did he die for our sins, but he rose again as well. And he completed that plan of salvation that God offers to every one of us. And without his resurrection, we have no hope of forgiveness in this life and life eternal with him throughout all eternity. And here's the final thing I'll focus on and then we'll start to wrap it up. Is that for us as Christians, the resurrection of Jesus ultimately, it reshapes the way we view death in the lives of other followers of Christ. I've been at funerals for my mom, for my dad, for my oldest sister. I've done dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of funerals through the 21 years I've been here. And I've been to others. And you've had your countless shares of funerals you've been to as well. The reason... That you can attend a funeral for a loved one. The reason that I can attend or lead a funeral for people that I love, including family, with a sense of real, genuine hope is because knowing that they've placed their faith in Jesus and that Jesus secured their victory for all of eternity through his own death and resurrection. That as he conquered the grave, not just sin, but the grave. It's what gives us the assurance, and it's what really shapes the way we view death of believers today. And there are people in this room right now listening to what I'm saying, and you've lost a mom, you've lost a dad, you've lost a grandparent, you've lost a brother or a sister or a spouse. You've lost a loved one. You've lost a close friend. You've lost someone who meant seemingly the world to you. And in the midst of that grief, what tempers that grief and what ultimately leads you through the other side of that grief back into a place of joy is knowing that they had a relationship with a Savior named Jesus who conquered the grave, not just himself, but for them and that this world is not all there is and that one day when your eyes close in death as a fellow follower of Jesus, they're going to open in life not only to a great resur- to a, to a resurrection, to a brand new life in a place called heaven, and you're going to get to lay eyes for the first time on the Savior who made it all possible, but you're also kind of as like icing on top of the cake, you're going to get to spend all of eternity with those loved ones who also knew Jesus, who passed away ahead of you, and if there's no resurrection of Jesus, there's no tempering of your grief today, we grieve for the rest of our lives with no hope, it's because Jesus rose, and because ultimately those who know Jesus will be risen again from the dead, that we can have hope even in the face of death and sorrow. The resurrection of Jesus reshapes the way we see death. It's like like death draws this harsh outline of a person's life, and the resurrection just removes the outline and just replaces it with color the way God intended. Life lived forever in the presence of God. Many of you have made the decision to give your life to Jesus. You would have not given your life to a Savior who still occupied a grave. You gave your life to Jesus because he conquered the grave. He's God, and he alone can save you from your sin and give you life that you need. Others of you, you're still searching, and I'll just go ahead and say, And I don't say this because of anything on my part. I say it because of the evidence. You're not going to find anyone else like him. He's the only Savior. Acts four twelve. There's another name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. C.S. Lewis is probably the foremost author, at least in the modern era of Christianity. I love this quote, and we'll close with it this morning. He says, Christianity, if it's false, is of no importance. But if true, it is of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. The tragedy of the Christian church today is that we make the death and the resurrection and the offer of the gospel as somewhat moderately important. It's something else on top of the pile of everything else we chase after of importance in our lives and often gets lost in the mix to where we don't tell people about him. We don't worship him with hearts that are yielded and we more or less just kind of toy around and dabble with him. But if Christianity is as true as it claims to be, dabbling is not an option. Either we reject him or we follow him with all of our heart. And when we follow him with all of our heart, we put ourselves on the anvil every day and say, God, here I am your servant. Do with me as you would. And we trust him and walk with him in joy. I hope that's your heart's desire. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, no better time than today, right where you sit, believing that he's God, that he died, that he rose, that you've sinned and that you need him, to say, Jesus, would you even forgive and take over this life as I yield it to you? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the mission of your life on this earth all along, that it was to seek and to save what was lost. Lord, it's mind-boggling to think that you even created us knowing what it would cost you, knowing that we would sin, knowing that it would require a perfect substitute and sacrifice, knowing that it would only be your son who would fill that role, and yet you made us anyway. It is our relationship with us, and that only comes when we see you, Jesus, for who you are, God who died and rose, when we see ourselves for who we are, sinners in need of grace and forgiveness, and when we come to you on your terms for that. Lord, many of this room have made that decision. God, I pray that our desire would be to grow deeper and deeper in our relationships with you. Lord, that we would have a desire and a heart to share this simple message of the gospel with those who are still dead in their sins, God, to know that an offer of life is available. God, that you give us boldness, that we would stand on your truth, that we would love people and meet them where they are, the way you did, Jesus, and that we would be people who worship you for being a God who does all this for us. Lord, we thank you for the for the truth that's captured in the pages of of the New Testament and of your entire word, Lord, that gives us every reason to believe and trust that exactly what you told us is exactly what happened. We praise you for being the God that you are. Grow our love for you, we pray in Jesus' name.